CNN during the State of the Union address came in behind not just Fox and MSNBC, but behind all three of the major broadcast networks on a political event, which is exactly the kind of thing that CNN used to own and used to dominate on from a ratings perspective. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, February 9th. Today, Dylan Byers is here to talk about whether a long-term strategy for CNN is finally coming into view. And if so, is there still a market for fact-based, sober-minded news at a time when viewers just seem to want news that validates their own opinions? And later, Teddy Schleifer stops by to discuss the latest intrigues in conservative tech circles and why the biggest billionaire donor isn't backing Ron DeSantis. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of Powers of the Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers, our media savant uh, and resident, handsome LA resident. It's good to see you, buddy. Hey, we've talked a lot about CNN on this podcast. You've covered it a lot for Puck, obviously. Some of your reporting has been incremental, like they're going to put these hosts in these hours. Um, and some of your reporting has been from you know the top down, what does David Zaslav want? And some of your reporting has been from grousing people in the newsroom who don't agree with the direction he's taking the network. And they're probably doing therapy out loud based on the fact that, <laughs> um, you know, Money and ratings are down since the Trump years and since Jeff Zucker left. But I want to level set on this podcast today and talk about Chris Licht, the uh, president of CNN. He's been there about nine months now. Just generally speaking, like what is he doing right now to either right the ship or to reinvent programming or to generally just get the place on a footing where both (laughs) the business side and the talent in the newsroom will be happy with it? Right. Well, it's a very good question. And and I think what I would say first is the way that you've characterized the problems is is right. Some of these things are very high level. Some of these things are nitpicks and gripes um, that talent have. And some of these things have material effect, right? I mean, maybe you like the new tone and tenor of CNN, or maybe you don't, uh, and, and everyone is entitled to their opinion. But when you were talking about the actual business of CNN, 
uh, a business that has for a long time was doing more than a billion dollar in profit. And that last year did just 750 million in profit. How the network is doing, and in fact, how it is rating is something that actually has very tangible effects. Mm. And it's how you either arrive at a point at the end of the year, like we did at the end of the year last year, where you may or may not have to lay people off or cut certain segments of the business. And so that is where the rubber hits the road. Right now, what has happened, uh, as I've reported this week, is that the budget this year has been brought down from over a billion to 900 million. But that is still higher than how they did last year. And so when you see the ratings in decline, and this week, for instance, CNN, during the State of the Union address, came in behind not just Fox and MSNBC, but behind all three of the major broadcast networks on a political event, which is exactly the kind of thing that CNN used to own and used to dominate on from a ratings perspective. This becomes very significant. You actually do, as much as uh, Chris Lick, David Zaslav will say, we, we don't care about the ratings, we're worried about the reputation. You don't have a reputation if nobody is watching you, and you don't have enough revenue if nobody is watching you. So what is he doing? We're, we're still a few months out from seeing exactly what this new CNN is going to look like, but, but there are a few things that I've learned. One is that the primetime strategy is going to be decidedly different from here is one host in the 9 p.m. hour who we are sort of building the brand around. There are going to be a lot of different kinds of programming. They are going. They are trying to lure in big talent with name recognition. I've reported in the past that they're talking to Gail King. They're talking to other people who are similarly known quantities. Can they get those people in to do some sort of newsy show Uh, maybe it's not every night of the week, maybe it's one night a week, and then you sort of rotate it. Maybe it's on a short-term basis. But can you basically put together a lot of different building blocks of notable programming, the stuff that will at least cause viewers to say, huh, maybe I'll take a look. And can you sort of like piece that together into a primetime smorgasbord that, well, well, you're not going back to the same host every night. You're at least knowing that 9 p.m., or 10 p.m. on CNN is at least going to be interesting. That's part one. Part two on Dayside, a few weeks ago, Chris Licht announced this plan where he's basically going to divide daytime up into three-hour blocks, each of one of them co-hosted by three co-hosts. That on its own doesn't seem terribly exciting. That has always struck me as a sort of cost-saving measure, and, and I could never figure it out editorially. But I'm told that in doing this, he's also going to sort of overhaul the look and the feel of the network. And so it is going to be an aesthetically different experience. Now, aesthetics are not going to reverse the inexorable decline of linear television or of cable news, but I am told this is going to look like something that is going to differentiate it from anything else on television. And if that's true, and if the people telling me this haven't sort of just, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid, maybe there's something interesting there. And and maybe that will be enough to at least, if not reverse CNN's fortunes in Dayside, then at least sort of stem the tide. I think back to, and I had friends at CBS um, at the time, especially how CBS this morning did change in terms of its look when he came in and he put Gail and Charlie and I think Nora O'Donnell, right? Mm-hmm. Those are the three right. initial hosts. And so you had kind of a jib cam sort of moving around a set. It felt conversational. The people had gravitas. And one thing he hasn't proven yet is something he was able to do in his past jobs was like somehow create chemistry out of like 
a motley crew of people. <laughs> right. You know, there was chemistry right. on Morning Joe. There was chemistry on CTM, and he's still figuring that at, at, at CNN. But the thing that you're talking about that jumped out at me that I'm trying to synthesize here is if CNN can be serious and be reputationally repaired um, and not just a left-leaning network like it was the last six, seven years, it's okay if it doesn't do super well in the ratings as long as it's viewed as a reputational asset and like the most serious actor of the bunch. Uh, and, and the reason I'm coming around to this is CTM was never going to get the ratings of Good Morning America and the Today Show, but it was viewed as the like more serious morning show. It was more newsy, you know, and and maybe maybe that's what where he's trying to align CNN against Fox and MSNBC. Or am I just making that up? No, I think, look, I understand that logic up in, to a point. Right. And, and, and what Licht has said publicly is if you have that reputation, then the ratings will, will follow. I think where I get concerned is that nothing he has done so far has, has borne that out. Right. Like there are certainly more Republicans on the network than there used to be. You saw that during the Kevin McCarthy votes. And so he, in that regard, he is following through on the mandate to make the network less partisan and perhaps less polarizing. But again, it's very hard to have a reputation if people aren't watching. And there are all these ways in which you're like, okay, so CNN, CNN does not perform well during the State of the Union address, during this sort of big new made for television news event that is the United States shooting down this Chinese balloon. They don't even have live footage of it. And Fox News does. And, and so they're all and then, you know, you talk about chemistry on air. Uh, yes, CBS this morning became known as a sort of the thinking person's uh, serious morning show, at least in the broad on broadcast. CNN this morning is known for nothing except for the lack of chemistry between two of the co-hosts. And so, yes, you don't have to have a ratings behemoth. Yes, you do not need to, to beat Fox News, but you do need to make good on your commitments to advertisers. And if you are selling advertising on the promise of x hundred thousand viewers in the demo and you're not hitting those targets then you are in trouble and again that what does that trouble mean like yes you've got a parent company in warner brothers discovery that could conceivably take care of you but what it means is that at a certain point you might have to lay more people off and if you have to lay more people off eventually you're going to arrive at a point where there's nothing left to cut without significantly undercutting the business itself and your ability to report on events around the world, be they a, an earthquake in Turkey and Syria, a war between Russia and Ukraine, even successfully cover a presidential election. And so I think that is this area where you cannot rely on reputation alone. The ratings actually do matter because they matter to this to the strength of the business. Um, you tweeted this on Wednesday when the State of the Union ratings came out. Fox News did four and a half million, ABC News 4.2, NBC 3.6, MSNBC did 3.5 million. CBS basically did two. And then near the bottom was CNN, 2.3 million. Yeah. And it's funny because last night I read this piece in The New Yorker that Louis Manon wrote um, about sort of, you know, thinking through the role of the political press in history. Um, he made a point that I've been making for years now, which is that distrust in the press has been declining well before Donald Trump came along. Um, and I appreciated him making that point. There are reasons for that. There's behavioral reasons for that, in fact, uh, on the part of the media. But one thing he said, which is, the, uh, you know, not a hot new take, people want to be told what they want to hear. MSNBC and Fox do well because they 
they're partisan and they tell people what they want to hear and they tell people that they're right. They don't tell people what they need to hear. And that right. feels like CNN's ultimate dilemma, which is more existential. <laughs> it's like a, a news organization that is there to report facts and, um, you know, that's just like a tough place to be in 2023 in the era of the algorithm. It, it is a tough place to be. And it's a really big bet that the market for nuanced conversation that makes room for the opinions of a broad swath of the electorate is where the viewer wants to be. And all of the available evidence suggests it's not. And moreover, the available evidence also suggests or, or actually very much strongly indicates that the people who still watch get their news from television are increasingly older. So if you are counting mm -hmm. on a new generation of people who are going to come around to a more moderate, nuanced, sophisticated view of politics and culture and everything else, even if that were to happen, those people wouldn't be getting their news from television. So it is a very long shot uh, and it's a big gamble. And as look, as a citizen, I love the idea. I think probably most of the people that you and I know do love the idea of of a channel that is not just like blatantly partisan and contributing to the erosion of decency and civility in our society. But as a business, whether or not that's going to work, you have to create compelling programming around that that people want to watch. And almost a year in, Chris Licht has yet to do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I root for CNN. I'm rooting for Chris Licht. Um, Dylan, thanks for joining us, man. Thank you. When we come back, Teddy Schleifer talks to Ben Landy about where conservative tech money is going in 2024. Welcome back to The Powers That Be. I'm Ben Landy here with Teddy Schleifer. Happy Thursday, Teddy. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. You had some reporting the other day on the early presidential shadow primary that sort of kicked off in Silicon Valley, in which yeah. nobody's really announced yet besides Trump. And of course, Nikki Haley pre-announced that she's announcing, and we sort of assume that DeSantis is going to get in the race soon. But there's already been a ton of activity among donors who are courting candidates and candidates who are courting donors. What is your early read on who's capturing attention on the West Coast? And is DeSantis the guy to beat? So it is in some ways very early, but in some ways, you're, you're totally right, Ben. There, there is uh, an energy and kind of furious lobbying that, that happens even in February uh, of the prior year. And right now, DeSantis definitely is the guy to beat among major donors. You know, he's coming out to California or, or Southern California next month for some fundraising for a local party committee. Um, he's going to sprinkle in some other donor stuff around the sidelines of that. Um, he is definitely the guy to beat when it comes to major donors. Now, obviously, you know, this is going to be a long campaign. We'll see whether or not donors stick with him when DeSantis is tested on the debate stage or, or has to tussle with Trump really for the first time as a declared candidate. But like, there are other Republicans who I think are going to get a lot of looks from major donors. I mean, you mentioned Nikki Haley. You know, she was, of course, the UN ambassador and, you know, got to know lots of kind of traditional pro-Israel donors during her time in New York. I wrote a little bit this week about Tim Scott, who may not run, but like is certainly positioning himself to run. And he has uh, a huge benefactor behind him in Larry Ellison, the Oracle chairman and co-founder who has spent a staggering $35 million of his own money that he's entrusted Scott to uh, spend wisely. And 
Um, we report in, in our story this week that Ellison has been telling other Republicans, other friends, that he very much wants Tim Scott to run for president, um, which is sort of obvious in some ways, but also has not been reported before that Ellison is pushing this guy to do it. So let's see if he does it. Yeah, the Larry Ellison, Tim Scott relationship is totally confounding to me. And on, on one level, I get it. You know, Tim Scott is a very talented politician. Um, he has an inspiring life story, but he doesn't seem like a candidate that has any kind of large national base. I mean, he, of course, he's liked. He's well liked. Mm-hmm. The base is not excited about Tim Scott. He has Larry Ellison in his corner, but I, I'm not sure um, Ellison has yet done the the polling to see whether this guy can actually make an impact outside of his, his vacation retreats that he's been making to Lanai. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, Tim Scott is very well liked by GOP elites. You know, he's popular in the Senate. He's popular among major donors. But there's often like, you know, huge gaps between how Republican elites feel and Republican voters feel. I mean, I mean, obviously, Trump is the you know, canonical example there. But when you look at donors, there are lots of times when, you know, a candidate has infinitesimal support um, among real people, but donors go gaga over the guy. And sometimes those circles can converge, right, where they think the theory of the case for Larry Ellison or for any kind of major donor is like, I've seen this guy up close. I know that this guy is going to be the next president of the United States or is capable of becoming the next president of the United States. I'm going to spend my money to help the hoi polloi reach the same conclusion. It's sort of a conceited and arrogant view of the world. That's how lots of major donors feel when they have a candidate who has no public support but has tons of elite support. And sometimes it can be true, right? I mean, if you spend a lot of money and you know have the ability to reach the audience in a way that you do not are not able to do if you do not have that much money, right? If Tim Scott did not have Larry Ellison in this corner, Tim Scott might be at 2% for forever. But that's what I think distinguishes Scott from, say, like a Mike Pompeo or, or a Asa Hutchinson, like these like real third or fourth tier candidates, is that Scott's going to have actual financial power behind him in a way that you know people who have infinitesimal support among real people and infinitesimal support among donors, that's you know the worst case scenario. <laughs> So that's why I think Scott, in theory, could be a more credible candidate than Mike DeWine or some person who's really going to have no support among real people or among major donors. I'm glad you brought up this dynamic because it's funny. You had some reporting a while back on DeSantis, who, of course, is a guy that Republican donors love. The elite Republican establishment loves DeSantis. When he actually gets in a room Mm. with these donors, they're totally turned off by him. And this is something you, you had reported multiple times now. When he's out there fundraising, he's stiff, he's antisocial, uh, he's awkward. But I, I guess the question is, like, who else is even a live option at the moment besides Trump? And if DeSantis is the guy, does the fact that he doesn't actually have this strong rapport with donors in real life matter at the end of the day? Are, are they going to still line up to support this guy regardless? Ben, I think you're totally right. Where lots of donors are right now is they know about where they stand on the Trump question. Um, I mean, how could you not (laughs) at this point, you know what you're getting in 2024 with Donald Trump, but uh, in terms of which flavor of anti-Trump or non-Trump candidate you're supporting with, with your money and your bundling up ability and your time, lots of donors are on the fence on that. It does feel like DeSantis is the only option at times, right? I mean, uh, Republican donors are not stupid and they know that 
spending a lot of money on the Asa Hutcherson campaign is not is not a good use of their time. And, you know, maybe they would wish that, you know, the Republican Party was, you know, a battle of ideas of the Jeb Bushes versus the Marco Rubios versus the Paul Ryans versus the Mitt Romneys. Like, I think those personal politics align much more neatly with the Republican donor base. But that's a pipe dream, right? I mean, the the so even if DeSantis is more kind of Trumpian than they would like, you know, he may be seen as the last only hope really against against Trump because, you know, he is at this point has a credible chance of winning. And, you know, there will be no John Kasich constituency in the Republican Party, even if like a John Kasich does personally align with Republican donors politics more than Ron DeSantis would. Like I mean Ron DeSantis is still plenty conservative. You know, he is still plenty uh, offensive to kind of the donor class uh, writ large. But at the end of the day, he's their only option. Even if he's stiff, even if he's archly conservative, he is the only chance to beat Trump, I think lots of donors think, in in the Republican Party as it's currently uh, defined, not in the Republican Party of, of their imagination. David Sachs, the entrepreneur and investor who he made his first yep. bag with PayPal, now a, a popular podcast host in addition to other things. He's probably the most vocal backer of DeSantis out in California. Do you think that Sachs is sort of the new Peter Thiel in terms of his impact financially and politically serving as a potential bridge between Silicon Valley and the Republican nominee this cycle? That's actually an interesting question. I mean, I mean, Sachs is 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 working hard on this stuff. I think probably in a way that's not properly appreciated. Like Sachs is spending a lot of time with political consultants. Like I know Republicans who say that like five years ago they could not get an email back from Sachs, but now he returns their notes. Like he he's being closely watched by Republicans in D.C. by fundraisers, and he's engaging in the conversations. But to contrast that with someone like Teal, I mean, Sachs just is not as wealthy as Peter is, obviously. I mean, I don't have their bank account logins, but like Sachs could not, if you told me that Sachs was going to drop like, you know, 30 or $40 million on Republican primaries, which is, you know, what Peter spent last cycle, that seems unlikely to me. But Sachs is going to put in probably more effort than Peter is. You know, Peter is sort of dejected and, and you get the sense from talking to his friends. And frankly, Peter sort of said this publicly at the Oxford Union last month in a, in a speech that didn't get a lot of attention. But Peter wants to like spend his time on other stuff. Um, he has two young kids. He really is like feeling unmotivated by what happened in 2022, even though J.D. Vance did win, like the Blake Masters experience, I think, kind of soured Peter in politics for a while. While while David is is very interested in, in kind of becoming a Republican power broker, and David does not have as much money as Peter Thiel does. Peter Thiel made an enormous amount in Facebook early on. Peter is a couple years older than David, but you know, David is someone who I think will ultimately be more of a player in 2024 than Peter Thiel will be, just because Sachs is going to be the Ron DeSantis guy in the Valley. And I expect Sachs to host multiple events for, for DeSantis. David Sachs has started a super PAC. David Sachs has political advisors. Like he's gearing up to be, to be a player in a way that Peter is, I don't want to say he's on the downslope, but like, it's certainly unclear if he has the appetite to kind of do what David's prepared to do this time around. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see what Sachs does going forward, how um, Ellison's bet on Tim Scott shapes up. I mean, obviously, like you said, there is often a disconnect between elite power, elite money, and the candidate that actually emerges. Obviously, we saw the best example of that in 2016 when all of the Republican elite money was arrayed behind 
candidates who are not Donald Trump. And then Trump just bulldozed his way through the Republican primary in a way that nobody saw coming. But I think, uh, it, you know, it will be interesting to see what happens over the next couple months, whether there's money that lines up behind Nikki Haley, Glenn Youngkin, any of these other candidates who look like they are on the verge of stepping up and challenging Trump, whether it's DeSantis or somebody else. Teddy, thanks as always for stopping by and and chatting about all this. And uh, we'll have more in the coming weeks. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.